This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 53. My name is Dominic. My co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him uh, once we get into the interview. Today we speak to Finnish author Vesa Iti about his new book, Lightbringers of the North, Secrets of the Occult Tradition of Finland. Vesa is a Finnish writer and translator with a master's degree in comparative religion from the University of Turku. Now, we didn't know much about Finnish occultism going into this interview, and we learned a bunch from this book and from this uh, author. Do you know anything about modern Finnish occultism? Well, if not, then you're about to learn some things. As always, we give uh, big thanks to our Patreon supporters, Thank you so much for partnering with us on this journey uh, with this uh, experiment that we're doing uh, of the podcast. You know, we don't make a ton off of Patreon, but it is nice to be able to offset some of the costs of making the podcast for sure. Um, It's also nice to know that people are willing to partner with us to continue this journey. If you would like to um, sign on with us and help support what we're doing, please feel free to do so. Um, run over to Patreon, just type in Magician and the Fool podcast and um, donate what makes sense to you. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they together with us may equally realize awakening. excited to have Vesa Iti, and I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but it's good enough according to Vesa. Um, welcome to the show. We're here to talk about your new book and everything Finnish as far as occultism goes. Thank you. It's an honor to be your guest. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this. Um, trying to get it scheduled has been has been fun, but we finally got, got our, our act together and, and here we are. So um, the book is called Lightbringers of the North, Secrets of the Occult Tradition of Finland. 
Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think this will be an interesting episode um, because I don't know that people outside of Europe, specifically United States, are that well educated on on Finnish spirituality, Finnish occultism. Um, so this will be a good introduction, I think, for for most of our listeners. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, we'll start with a little bit about yourself, how and why you undertook this project. Um, we also want to acknowledge your your co-author, Pertu, who is no longer with us, if you want to mm-hmm. uh, talk about him a little bit as well, and, and we'll sure. just go from there. Sure. The story begins in 2014. Uh, there was this uh, book fair in Helsinki where I was talking about uh, my translation of Gianna de Salzman's The Reality of Being. And after uh, the talk, Perto uh, approached me and told me that, uh, listen, I have an idea, like, uh, how about we write a, a book, about, book about the history of Finnish esotericism or occultism, framing it to time uh, time from roughly beginning from the independence of Finland we became independent in 1917 and what comes after that um, and um, I was like hmm, I, di- I didn't know Perto that well back then and uh, I wasn't too enthusiastic uh, about the book uh, and the idea for the book in the beginning so I was like um, well that's interesting let's think about it and I left it at that. And like a three months later, uh, Bertu came back to me and I uh, asked, like, how about that book? Like, uh, have you thought about it? I was like, uh, actually not. Like, I'm not quite convinced about the whole idea. But uh, we talk more and more. And uh, I kind of get an idea that hmm, there might be something into this. This might be a great idea. And, uh, and uh, so we decided that, all right, let's do this. And, um, and we decided to look for the potential publisher, which we found very quickly. And I uh, got, the, got the deal very quickly. And, uh, and it came from there. Uh, Perto approached me, of all the people, uh, regarding the book, because uh, he was familiar with um, the books I had been I had written earlier and translated, and uh, I was uh, having quite popular blog at the time that uh, lots of people read. And uh, he got an impression that uh, I had an approach that he likes. I have a sense of humor that he likes and that we have a chemistry that works. And so it went from there. And he was right. Uh, our team worked really well. We had an absolutely great time together. And uh, then the book was published by this Liga Kustannus in 2015, the Finnish version, and it became an immediate success. The second print well, it went into the printing machines already like two weeks after the first print. And we got a huge amount of attention from all kinds of media, from the big news to the radio and all the newspapers and so forth. And... Uh, Two occult walk, walk, uh, walking tours were arranged in Turku and Helsinki, and one theater play in northern part of Finland in the city of Oulu was inspired by the book and mm. stuff, stuff like that. So, um, so uh, that's a short story about uh, how the Finnish version uh, came to be, and uh, it's another story like how this English uh, edition came to be. Do you want me to? Yeah, of course. <laughs> 
All right. Okay. So long story short. Um, so immediately after the Finnish version of the book came out in 2015, uh, Berto really wanted to get it also in English. He kind kindly nudged me every now and then that, uh, hey, how about this English version like that? Because you've translated books earlier. Maybe you could do this too, because we didn't have a funding or grants to get some professional translator to translate it into English. So, of course, we would have saved that money <laughs> and got it done uh, quicker, maybe. I was busy with other things uh, back then, and I I was I was thinking that we'll, we'll do this uh, later, not now. And, uh, well, Perto returned to me with this thing every now and then, like uh, to the very year, uh, 2018, when he unfortunately passed away in a bicycle accident. And uh, after that, uh, I got things done that I was busy with. And uh, it really came to me that uh, this feeling that, uh, that Perto, Perto really wanted to get this book in, in English. Uh, he called it, uh, to use Alastair Crowley's terminology, Perto called it part of our great work, both him and mine, and that uh, he really wanted to get it in English. And uh, I, I got Perto even in my dreams a few times telling me that this needs to be finished, this project. <laughs> <laughs> like he didn't leave me alone. <laughs> So I, I thought that uh, this is a matter of honor. This is a really a matter of honor to our yeah. dear friend. And it's a good idea as such uh, in general. Like, uh, all right, I need, to, I need to finish this now. So I contacted Inner Traditions that Perto had made an initial contact already in 2015. And I continued talking with John Graham, uh, who Perto had also been in contact with. And uh, we talk about it. I sent him uh, sample chapters, rough trans translations, and uh, then uh, he gave green light to the book. And uh, then I translated the rest, and I had a very good uh, proofreading and editing team. Uh, and well, now we're here. The book is finally out also in English, and uh, that's fantastic. Like, it's been a great, great process, and uh, I've been extremely happy working with people from inner traditions and also my Finnish uh, proofreaders and the proofreaders and editors from uh, from America. Absolutely brilliant people, professional, and uh, it's been great pleasure working with all of them. And the book wouldn't be out there without their help and work with me. So great. finally we're here and it's it's I feel good about it. Good. So Congratulations. My, absolutely. It's Thank an excellent you. book too. I love it from, I, I think it's well-written. Um, I like the cover. I mean, the whole thing, I really enjoyed every minute of it. Um, to me, though, like, I, even though the book starts with it, still my favorite figure in the book is probably Pekka Erevast. Mm -hmm. um, I just find him to be so intriguing. And um, it's a little sad to me, too, because I feel like he didn't get the he was he was, you know, experienced rebuttals and setbacks. He reminded me a little bit of a of a Finnish Franz Barden in some ways, too. Um, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about Pekka. Yeah, Ervas, Pekka Ervas, uh, as you said, uh, the first chapter of the book is about him. Uh, he was a very influential person, uh, not only in esoteric occult circles of Finland, but uh, 
in the cultural like atmosphere of that time in general. He was born 1875, died 1934. Uh, he joined the Theosophical Society at a very, very early age with the permission of his father, because he was uh, so young back then that he needed uh, permission of the parents to join the society. And um, he had a very important role in bringing Theosophical Society to, to Finland, and he had important positions inside of it, of course. And um, in addition to Theosophical Society, he was also bringing this Ledroit Humain type of Freemasonry to Finland, uh, the type of Freemasonry that allows both men and women to be members. So he had an important role in that as well. And when he got, uh, um, the things get too difficult with Theosophical Society, he founded his own society, Rosariste, can be translated into Rose Cross. Uh, he was uh, politically left-leaning, very much Kalevala, the national epic of Finland inspired. Uh, interestingly, uh, when it comes to his like a political leanings, uh, regardless of being clearly left-leaning, he did his best to keep distance to politics and getting involved with politics. He saw that theosophy was something that needed to be like uh, kept separate from politics. And uh, when there became these internal struggles in theosophical society, he did really his best to try to be a kind of a diplomat uh, inside the society to get people together to uh, and to focus really on what theosophy was all about, this concept of brotherhood and truth behind all religions and all of that, instead of fighting against each other. So he um, he really focused like a, what was a kind of a deeper focus instead of some political political manifestations, and that's that's much different than a lot of the other characters in that yeah. you cover in the book as far as politics goes. Yeah, there are some people who were totally different different in that. Interestingly enough, uh, something else that I would add is that. Uh, well, this was in the very, very beginning, early part of, part of the last century. Ervast, uh, when it came to politics and kind of a political vision that was kind of guided by spiritual wisdom or insight, uh, he envisioned uh, basically European Union and uh, like a one common currency in Europe. That was very, very like a ahead of time, like about over 100 years ago or so. But lo and behold, here we are. We have the European Union and uh, uh, most of the countries here have Euro as the the one currency that uh, is all right to all the countries. So he was ahead of time. <laughs> and another thing I like about him is the, the way that from an early age, he had several visions. I mean, he was truly a visionary having interior mystical experiences. And I think the, on the front of the book, even there's that prophecy that Blavatsky had a, about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was this um, message that this, uh, what was her name? Wachtmeister. Anyway, it was a person who uh, worked with Blavatsky very closely. 
And uh, Ervast met her, this Wachtmeister, I think it was in Stockholm, in Sweden anyway. And uh, this person told to Ervast that uh, Blavatsky has said so. It's kind of a message to Ervast. And it went uh, roughly like that. Uh, there will come, there will become a time when the world looks so dark and uh, difficult, and and even theosophists like uh, are not sure, but like what it's what it's theosophy all about, and uh, where how to do things, and so on. Then everybody should like uh, look towards Finland because the light will come from there. So uh, this kind of. Uh, message uh Ervas got through through this uh this person who was uh, close to Blavatsky Blavatsky was of course like a uh inspired by Finland Finnish culture uh, also very much because of the national epic Kalevala that she had apparently read and uh really liked what she read she wrote i think two short uh papers about uh, her impressions of Kalevala and so and she was very very positive about that too so so yeah but uh, coming back to the vision or this point that you said about light coming from Finland um, yeah this is this this was the message that Ervas got from Blavatsky hey Vesa you uh, mentioned Kalevala can mm-hmm. you please because it is so important to this whole topic Mm-hmm. And and I'm thinking that a lot of people aren't familiar with it outside of Finland. Can you please uh, talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, Kalevala, the uh, national epic of Finland, was originally published 1835. It was a collection, uh, a compilation made by Elias Lernroth. Uh, he basically collected folk poetry from the eastern part of Finland, this area called uh, Karelia. Uh, and um, it was a folk poetry about uh, how the world was born, the myth about the beginning of the of the world, and uh, all kind of these themes that you, you can find from um, uh, epics of, of different nations, different different cultures and, and uh, so uh root basically collected this kind of uh, folk poetry about all these kind of themes and also there's lots of magical materials involved like uh, how to use uh, like an origin of words in magic and all this kind of stuff anyway he collected this uh, huge amount of folk poetry and uh, put together from there this uh, Kalevala a bit creatively, like I made it into into the epic. That was, of course, like a, came out 1835, the first edition, late that century. And so, um, of course, it was time of uh, getting uh, this a growing sense of national identity. Finland, Finland became independent in 1917, but uh, this was time in general, like uh, national romantic ideas and all of that. And... Uh, Kalevala needs to be put in this kind of historical context that this kind of uh, things were in the air uh, in in the world in general and um, 
this really inspired uh, lots of uh, artists, this national epic artists, and uh, of course, people who were interested in esoteric, esotericism, esoteric topics, occultism, and just the layman when it came to like uh, who we are and uh, what kind of things connect us. Like there was the language, of course, the geographical area and everything, but uh, now we had also this uh, national epic that told the kind of a mythical mythical past, if you will, of the nation and its mythical heroes, the Vainamon and the main hero, that is a, basically a poem singing uh, hero that uses his like uh, skills in verbal magic and he travels like uh, from this world to the underworld and back and comes with the wisdom and uh, and then there are all these um, other magical characters in the book. This book was very, very important for for the nation in general. And uh, um, after we became independent in 1917, uh, not just Kalevala, but other, other folk materials too, all of this huge corpus of, of this folk material dealing with uh, all the ideas about uh, the structure of uh, of the world, really, in the metaphysical way, and the magical means to effect things inside of it, and the all kind of spiritual entities that there are, all these pre kind of pre Christian uh, ideas, they be very um, inspiring to uh, artists, occultists. Ever since uh, we became independent, and also before of that, and um, as you you read through the book, you've noticed that the name of Kalevala pops up here and there. And um, yes, it was uh, in the Ervas time. It was important for Pekka Ervasta already, but uh, it comes up like a much much later too, like a totally different kinds of uh, esotericists and uh, esoteric groups have found inspiration from Kalevala and other um, these folk materials and it, it's still there it's a, it's been a very important book uh, uh, not just to people in general but uh, also to the occultist esotericist of Finland Is it still looked at um, and admired in the same way in the present day? I can't like when I think of it right now if I can think of uh, any special groups or individuals who would like uh, really underline it um, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't remember like I, I don't I can't get to my mind right now anybody okay. or any any group that would pay special attention to it but uh, I'm sure that there are like uh, people especially when it comes to the neo pagan groups and uh, mm-hmm. everything in that direction like a uh, uh, especially those people, they find uh, this kind of uh, folk poetry and materials like uh, relevant and in, in, uh, inspiring in a special way. Although there are other people too, like also in the UFO circles, like this Kalevi um, Riikonen, who is one very famous contactee, um, he talks like a very positively about. Uh, Kalevalan culture and uh, refers to this kind of mythical Kalevala world and and things related. So it's there and it's still influencing very different types of people. Would you say that um, that epic is kind of a bridge between the older Finnish uh, kind of indigenous spirituality and the 
the more modern uh, spirituality and occultism that you covered in your book. Does that make sense? Certainly, it's a one bridge, a mm. one chain in a huge spectrum of uh, influences that carry these uh, ideas from the past uh, and are very popular as such. But uh, it's it's just one. Like yeah. there are other yeah. other important works too, like. Um, Christfried Genander, um, he lived in the 18th century. He wrote this very important uh, book called Mythological Fennica. That was, I think, the first like um, work to uh, put in the between uh, between covers, like uh, what kind of um, entities and ideas there is in the Finnish mythology and uh, these folk folk ideas of these things. There's been all uh, like a di- other kinds of uh, books and uh, channels to bring to this day uh, the old old ideas from a pre-Christian, more pagan culture and so. But uh, Kalevala is one of them and uh, probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular. Like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 important link. Okay, and if I'm understanding correctly, it was also important in helping uh, reaffirm a Finnish identity um, as it relates to uh, Russia. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like uh, it was a, it, it was a very important, like a part of uh, giving people this idea that, uh, that we are Finns as a nation. We are, we are Finns. We are separate. We are not Swedes. We are not Russians. We want to be Finns. Yeah. And uh, the epic was very important uh, one one uh, piece in this whole puzzle, like uh, that we have our own culture, we have our own epic, and uh, we have our own mites, our, our own uh, stories. It was, and in that time, it was uh, very important. Yeah, you're right. Okay. And, and building on that, that idea um, of nationalism, I guess, um, something in the book that I thought was interesting is you you covered a lot of diverse characters and historical figures in in this Finnish occult world but you didn't sugarcoat a lot of their flaws um, and there's there's a lot of problematic and and troubling characters or or characters with troubling views in the book um, a lot of you know uh, neo-nazi sympathies and admiration amongst um, some of these individuals. Um, and you you weren't shy about just kind of laying out the facts. Why do you think there was so much of this kind of um, neo-Nazi, like I said, sympathy? Do you think it had to do a lot with the just kind of opposition to Russian communism? Um, it was that the major kind of point or, or reason for this? Or what do you think? Because it's kind of the elephant in the room as far as the book when I was reading it. I did notice a lot of these individuals had admiration for Hitler and, and things like that. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting if you, if you could kind of talk about that too. Yeah. Well, to begin with, uh, yes, we, we didn't want to sugarcoat uh, these, uh, these characters or their stories, um, but, uh, but told this, their stories uh, as they are and what they were thinking and what they were doing and mm-hmm. put, put their stories and the persons also in a, historical context like right. what was the context that's very important uh, 
Well, um, there's this whole chapter about occultism, nationalism, where um, I would say most, if not all of these characters uh, that somehow link with uh, national socialism uh, pop up. There is a Sigurd Vetten Hoviaspa to begin with, uh, who died 1946. He had these uh, crazy ideas that uh, that a Finnish language was basically the root language of the whole world, and and that uh, Finnish people, like in their past, that we were actually like uh, also in ancient Egypt and so forth. Um, uh, in the beginning of the last century, uh, he was pretty much uh, pro pro Nazi Germany. He painted this huge painting of Adolf Hitler, for example, in his honor and uh, then there is uh, the story of Uriel von Grönhagen who uh, became a really really close friend with Heinrich Himmler and even a more close friend with Karl Maria Willigat uh, who of course had a very important role uh, when it comes to influences to Himmler and uh, creating like a this a myth about Nazi Germany and their Aryan magical past and all of that. Grönhagen was very closely involved with this kind of inner circle people, and he was naturally like a sympathetic to their cause. Um, uh, he was um, he was uh, not like a really really like a deep practitioner himself or anything, but he had an interesting role in the in the um, in with these people who had very important role in creating of this uh, myth related to Nazi Germany and their connect connection to the Aryan past and so forth. Uh, then there is this Weiner Kuisma who was this uh, right-wing nationalist who who draw lots of inspiration from Kalevala, of which we talked earlier. And uh, of course, then there's this whole chapter about this Pekka Seaton, the most probably infamous character of the whole book. Seaton lived 1944 uh, to 2003. Uh, he mixed politics and occultism. Uh, he was basically very comical neo-Nazi who was a devil worshiper who worshiped devil to honor God. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he uh, he was quite something. Um, when it comes to Seaton, uh, he's he's like a most his infame infa his infamous action started in the seventies, and uh, uh, this was the time when uh, we were politically like uh, all right, we were officially independent nation, but we had this special kind of relationship with Russia. They basically we're telling what we should think and do in our uh, uh, in, in like our own politics and stuff. It was a very, very like kind of uh, sub suppressing times. And uh, there were lots of people who, of course, opposed this and felt bad about this in many ways. And well, Seton, who was um, what he was like, he was very much into questioning everything and opposing things uh, in general. So, um, well, he was a devil worshiper, of course, like when it comes to this kind of place in history and uh, uh, geographically being right next to the Russia, who was like uh, too much meddling with our uh, own politics. Um, it was not a big surprise that person like Seaton, like uh, 
decided or felt that uh, I'm going to be openly a neo-Nazi because it's a huge middle finger to the whole situation and to the Russia and communism that he hated. And uh, so it's in this kind of uh, context when it comes to CETO. The other people mentioned earlier, like Bettenhovi Aspa or Yuri von Grönhagen, they were, of course, early last century, and it was a bit different, the whole, whole thing and uh, their relationship to Nazi ideology was different. Like they lived during the time when the Nazi Germany was still there. And there wasn't this historical distance that it, that we have now. And it's, it's now easy to judge those people and, and all of that. But they were living there and it was a political reality. And um, so they were not like a, nothing like sea time, but uh, but clearly like a, like like Finland in general. When it came, comes to the Second World War, uh, we were allies with uh, Nazi Germany at one point, uh, and uh, it was just the realities uh, of the times and our position on the world map. And because of that, some people felt this way, the others that way, and also some occultists. Uh, aired their views and uh, what they think of these things. So, so yeah, this this comes partly to uh, the things that are uh, what what makes like a Finnish occultism or national occultism or esotericism what it is like. What kind of things have colored it? One is our geology, uh, like a, our position on the map. Like a, we are kind of between east and west and. And then we have our history and um, things go like a together, like a, everything affects everything. So it's a puzzle of many pieces. Right, right. Yeah, it's very complicated. So thank you for yeah. kind of giving a an overview because um, it is kind of, it can be kind of a sensitive topic um, yeah. to a lot of people. So I think it's it's worth at least mentioning. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to talk about Tatarisuo next. I don't, I probably am butchering the word, but... Uh, what an intriguing, unusual, bizarre situation. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So I guess we jump into that. Uh, you pronounced it uh, so well that I absolutely understood what you meant. So Tattarisu, magic circle. Uh, do I just give an overview of what what it was about? Uh, that's up to you. I mean, whatever, however you want to penetrate the subject. I just, that was... That's such an interesting chapter in the book. I don't want to pass over it because it, it's so crazy, that situation. Yeah, this seems to be a favorite of uh, almost anybody uh, who I talk talk about the book. Like uh, it's a, It just seems to pop up in every, every discussion. And uh, I understand why. It's such a bizarre, fascinating, uh, crazy uh, um, so this Tatarisu uh, magic circle, um, they are located in 19, early 1930s. Um, it was a group of a working class, little educated people. There was like a five, six people involved. They, um, they, well, the whole story started when in 1930, they found a hand from this uh, spring or well from Tattarisu uh, area. It's a kind of industrial area close in the Helsinki, Helsinki area. And uh, well, 
nobody seemed to be missing the hand. So, <laughs> so the police just basically forgot it because they had more pressing issues uh, to work on. Uh, and nobody talked about that until one year later, one driver who was going to uh, drink from this spring, this well, found uh, other body parts from the same well and uh, contacted a local <clears throat> newspaper and, and the whole thing like uh, got out of hand there. Like it became a, a huge, huge news throughout the whole country. And it was uh, covered in all possible news, like uh, what's going on? Like uh, there is some weird, apparently like a ritual magic being done there with um, body parts on this uh, spring there in this Helsinki industrial area. What's going on? Like uh, what kind of a cult it is and, uh, and all of that. Um, well, it was found out that those body parts were not like uh, from any people who were murdered, but they had been cut from people who were already dead. And these guys of this, uh, this cult, uh, it was found out later that they actually went to this um, close by cemetery where there were these uh, coffins waiting to be buried. They, they were coffins for very poor people. And for them, uh, they waited that they get like uh, maybe six, eight coffins to be buried at the same time. And so if you wanted to go and uh, check inside those coffins before they were really like a buried, you had a good opportunity for that. So this, uh, this group, uh, its members, they went there and cut the body parts from those coffins and they used them as, uh, you could say, seals. They thought that uh, if they placed these uh, body parts as seals to, to the spring, uh, this uh, treasure that they imagined was there in the spring that it would pop up to the surface and they would get all these uh, um, treasures or these gold golden coins and whatever. Um, well, surprisingly, they didn't uh, ever get any treasure. Maybe they would have need more body parts. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but uh, they they didn't get any treasure. But they really tried. <laughs> In their this bizarre rituals, they used um, this grimoire that is known um, elsewhere in the world as the sixth and the seventh um, book of Moses. Uh, in Finland, is known basically as Mustaramattu, which literally translates into the Black Bible. Um, I have no idea why those who published the book the first time in the beginning of last century why they chose that. Finnish name for the book, probably because it just sounds more fascinating and sells better. Sure. But uh, that's that's the name um, that it's known basically in, in Finland. So they used uh, this book um, in their these uh, bizarre rituals. And in addition to this magical uh, treasure hunting or trying to get this, uh, this treasure up from the spring, they also were in magical wars against uh, right-leaning people of Finland during that time and also against Freemasons at the end of their career also against each others. And they were doing some very interesting uh, channeling of other worlds and spiritual entities. 
Yeah, basically that's it in a in a, in a nutshell. Like uh, what they were doing, and uh, it this was in 1930s, and uh, it was a huge, huge shock to the whole nation. And so, this whole situation to me seemed like an H.P. Lovecraft story almost. I mean, because <laughs> they're seeing visions on the walls of their apartments, and they're digging up bodies and cutting hands off of them, and the guys saying insane things like, you know, I am the great, you know, I'm, you know, yeah. my God great power i am going to save the universe it's just the whole thing is just totally insane and i actually mm-hmm. found it interesting that most of them seem to be a uh moderate to low intelligence yeah yeah that's that's a funny um idea that it's like a from a lovecraft novel yeah i think you're absolutely right what was the like the the background i mean is it just the, the sixth and seventh book, books of moses that that um influenced this like i where did they get these ideas? Was it uh, just their leader that kind of was channeling these ideas? Or, or? if I remember right, uh, it was this uh, Vilho Kallio, uh, Vilho Warlock Kallio, Noita Kallio. Uh, he was the leader of the whole group, really grim looking guy um, who lived very ascetic life. He had a background of uh, like uh, doing healing practices. And there were people who actually reported that uh, he had succeeded mm. in healing their problems. And so he never asked any money for what he did, but he had kind of a conditions uh, based on which he decided if he's going to help a person or 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 not. And uh, so he had this kind of healing healing practice background and, in, and he moved to Helsinki. Uh, at some point, he met uh, one lady who was a group member of this group, and I think it was uh, during one of their channeling of other words that this uh, woman, yeah, she got an uh, she got this vision that uh, that they need body parts, and uh, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> and the whole thing uh, started from there. And, wow. Uh, well, I think at that point already, this Bill uh, Hokali had already had this sixth and seventh book of Moses for uh, quite some time. They were, of course, familiar also with other um, occult, spiritual, spiritualist materials of the time, like um, what there was, theosophical literature, anthroposophical literature, all these kind of things but uh because um they i think because they were quite like a uh, little educated and uh not the smartest persons around and they i guess they didn't feel like that um, they would want to join any of those societies they somehow felt that they didn't feel at home there so um they came up with this um crazy alchemical synthesis of their own ideas and eventually ended up with their own magic circle so um yeah yeah very bizarre and uh, mm. interesting chapter mm. um so you've mentioned blavatsky uh, we've talked about theosophy a little bit but theosophy is seems to have had a, a major influence at least in um well on, on a lot of the characters if not all of them that you outline mm. in the book um, can you talk about that a little bit, as well as the influence of of Steiner and Gurdjieff as well? Yeah, sure. Um, um, one short little addition about this Tattarisov case that yeah. I have, haven't mentioned earlier in the interviews to the podcaster. So interesting angle was that uh, at some point, um, 
the police was suspecting that there is somehow <clears throat> some uh, British person involved with this cult, and the Finnish police uh, ask help uh, in investigating who this British person could be from Scotland Yard, and uh, and uh, like um, who could be like a, such an evil person in the world who might be involved with something like this, this kind of horrible things. Well. Alistair Crowley was a British and he, of course, had a huge reputation for doing all kinds of horrible things. So there's a good chance that he was a suspect <laughs> being involved with the whole case. But, uh, well, I guess they did their job well and find out that uh, uh, Megatherion uh, didn't have anything to do with this Finnish craziness. This was something else. Yeah, but uh, to the Theosophical Society and its influence, uh, you're right. It had a huge influence to many persons in the book uh, not all but um, but many and um, well of course beginning with Pekka Ervast uh, that's uh, that's um, that part of the story is located to the very beginning of last century and uh, this was in general uh, in Europe a time when uh, this kind of uh, new religious movements and ideas were like a getting stronger in general and they were fresh and new and they offered uh, something new uh, in in western cultures uh, europe states too of course like a there was in the air uh, criticism against uh, old societal structures in general and old uh, religious ideas in general, like the Christ like uh, official Christianity was criticized. People were looking for uh, something new, and there came these uh, new ideas, like a theosophical society, and and uh, with that, of course, like a Rudolf Steiner, Anthroposophia. And, uh, all these things and Gurdjieff was there, of course, in the mix as well, and many, many other peoples and movements. So this was the kind of a cultural atmosphere in general where Theosophy too was operating, and uh, it was um, it was something that uh, was tried to put to serve also like um, political ideas because they went so much hand in hand, like a criticism of of spiritual ideas, all spiritual kind of uh, ideas and the and the societal structure. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Ervas tried to stay away from politics as much as possible, but uh, he kind of still there on the from the background wanted to influence uh, people like that. Uh, okay, that if you are a socialist, you're like a left leaning. It's not enough that you're materialist, that you should like have also spiritual wisdom guiding you. So that way things would go better. And so, but um, Theosophical Society, it's uh, it influenced uh, in Finland, uh, not only just like a esotericist, occultist, but also artists in, in general. And um, I would say like a people of all levels of society in general, there must have been all kinds of um, people who were inspired by it that got something out of it. And uh, yeah, when it comes to, of course, offshoots of theosophical society, like um, anthroposophy, Steiner's ideas, uh, they are still here too, just like theosophical society. They are still 
in existence in Finland, their number of uh, the members is uh, rather small, and their average age of their members is also very high. So they should got some fresh blood to keep going, really. But um, mm. they made a huge Im- impact back then. And, well, we still have things like uh, in Finland, uh, there are what we call Steiner Koulut, like a Steiner schools. Uh, ba- there are schools that are based on uh, Rudolf Steiner's uh, pedagogical ideas. They are... Uh, they are accepted uh, to be like official schools because their curriculum uh, follows uh, what is required from schools in Finland in general for education. But uh, they have the, the Steiner pedagogic emph- emphasis back um, there on, on the background. And uh, it's very interesting. I've done myself um, some uh, teaching jobs mm. in a local Steiner school and uh, I've seen how it um, differs like uh, from the reg- regular regular school so these kind of things are here uh, still here and um, that's 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 very very interesting theosophy in general if we run through the book and its characters and organization these are uh, groups these magical societies uh, can be found from all kinds of directions like um Pekka Ervas, then there is this Aino Kassinen who died in 1977. She was a kind of a client of the nation, a self-taught helper. There was a lot of this kind of uh, theosophical influence in, in her practices. Also in the seat on this uh, notorious uh, devil-worshipping neo-Nazi that we mentioned, uh, he had a huge influence also from theosophy and Steiner. And uh, theosophy... Uh, influence also these uh, nationalistic ideas in the country and um, and uh, and Jorma uh, Ilovara, who uh, is famous for his uh, radio show from the late 60s, early 70s, Vesimiehen uh, Aika, the age of the Aquarius, was in the well mainstream Finnish uh, radio. He was a kind of a herald of this. Uh, this uh, new age, age of Aquarius, hippie esotericism, basically the same that I was in the States too, like what it was like there. I talk about uh, drugs and UFOs and um, all these um, popular themes. Uh, um, he um, he was a herald of that and, uh, and theosophy was very important for him too. I think it was the cornerstone of his like a magical thinking. And uh, theosophical thinking can be found from uh, people who are in the UFO UFO scene. And uh, of course, Eeyore Bok, chapter 11, this guy who created his own saga about um, the history of the world and how his family was gui- um, guarding the secret of the real past and uh, how he was uh, like uh, having keys to the secrets of the real meanings of the wor- words. And and so he was clearly also like a familiar with theosophical ideas. And um, mm-hmm. one of the more like uh, interesting angles when it comes to theosophy and uh, getting theosophical inspiration to one's own ideas uh, is probably found like a, from and this a group called Azazelin Tahti, the star of Azazel. It's um, still existing, a uh, Finnish uh, left-hand path. 
a magical organization. Uh, they are, most of the members are from Finland, but my impression is that they have members also worldwide. Uh, so they say they are a left-hand path organization, kind of a Satanist, I, I, I would say. But at the same time, uh, at least the founder of the group, this Johannes Nefastos, who is a prolific writer too, he has got uh, like clearly lots of influence from theosophy and also from the teachings of Jesus, like the Sermon of the Mount. So uh, theosophical influence can be traced all the way back to like a Pekka Ervast and people of this time. And it's still there, like in a surprising place, it's like some left-hand path organization today in Finland. So uh, it's clearly very, very influential ideas. Very interesting. Thank you for kind of laying that out for us. Janice, you still there? Well, I thought it might be cool to touch on a little UFO, the interest in UFOs, the UFO craze in Finland. That might be fun to discuss. Yeah, that's a, that's a chapter of its own, uh, chapter nine of the book. Um, this gives a, basically an overview of... Um, what's been going on here. Like uh, it uh, begins with this uh, folkloristic, folkloristic tale uh, that tells of a very, very early kind of folkloristic tale about encounter with a uh, UFO and its uh, uh, influence on this uh, little village of people. And uh, from there, the story opens. We go through a story of this Margit Lilius Mustapa, who was a ballet dancer in Finnish National Opera. She emigrated to the States later, wrote two books of her experiences in the 50s of UFOs and uh, alien encounters. There are also other case stories and one abduction story in the chapter. Um, one of the main uh, like uh, cases when it comes to Finnish UFOlogy that needs to be mentioned is this Pudasjärvi UFO craze. Pudasjärvi is uh, more like a northern part of, of, of Finland. Uh, it was 1960. Uh, it began 1969 and reached like I think till 1973. There were. Uh, Lots of lots of like uh, sightings of uh, various uh, very oddly behaving balls of light. They were also photographed quite well. Uh, I think dozens of people witnessed these, and these were behaving in the way that uh, they clearly were not like some uh, natural light phenomena. It was something something else, and uh, <clears throat> that's uh, when this began in 1969. It got a uh, it got the attention of the whole nation and uh, lots of articles were written and our reporters went to see what's going on because the phenomena continued. It wasn't just one sighting or so. And um, then it started to eventually fade away, but uh, it really got the attention of the people. And of course, it uh, interestingly was located into this uh, late 60s, early 70s, when there was, uh, well, UFOs were very much of interest in the world in general. There was this, uh, you could say, UFO craze in the whole world in general. But um, that that was an import, important uh, period in Finland when it comes to UFO history here. 
we go also through uh, history of Suomen UFO-tutkijat, <coughs> Finnish uh, UFO researchers, like um, the organization, what they've been doing. We go through uh, important figures like Kalevi Riikonen, born 1950. He's still around, uh, writes books and gives presentations. And, and so there's lots of material in the internet that one can find from him. Uh, he's a contactee, so he says that he's in contact with uh, with with aliens. And um, another person mentioned in in the in, in the chapter is this Raunilena Lukanen Kilda passed away in 2015. If Kalevi Rikonen was like a very positive and a kind of world embracing in his uh, his uh, views, this Raunilena Lukanen Kilda. He was very, very much different. Like she had a very pessimistic and dark view of the world. Um, she was talking about all these classical, like a conspiracy theories about Illuminati and how uh, uh, every, everything is kind of under under control of this uh, some huge invisible small circle of people and uh, how UFOs are also like. A, part of this and and so forth totally different kind of a person and then there is a uh, Johan Afgran very colorful um, Finnish uh, documentary movie maker who's um, had all kind of uh, interesting claims related to aliens and and uh, UFOs uh, some of these stories are absolutely hilarious like a like a like a, there is this Seaton guy, this uh, devil worshipping neo Nazi. He was also in, into UFOs. And uh, one of the most uh, funny stories in the books when it comes to UFOs is probably from him. And the story goes that in 1970, he claims that he saw UFOs at his cottage at, at Vehma. He also wrote an article about this experience and attached a photo of two balls of light in the dark to like make more credibility to his story and till the to the end of his life he claimed that these photos had been studied they had been authenticated that this was uh, really something extraordinary something unusual but uh, after his death and there was this one a company kind of antiquarian place in turku who bought lots of Seaton's uh, stuff. And uh, among the materials was the original photo of this so-called UFO photo. And the guy who bought all of this stuff, he said that, all right, the photo in the magazine is another story. The original picture is something else. The picture published in this magazine of these UFOs is blurred from the original and the original photo was nothing more nothing less than bare buttocks of Pekka <laughs> himself <laughs> what the yeah that's oh like my a, gosh. You, you, you need to raise your hat for <laughs> this kind of prank but uh, okay this is uh, this is crazy stuff but then there is a that's amazing <laughs> yeah yeah like uh, that's that's a that's a real um Baron von Münchhausen right there. <laughs> anyway, there are other stories in the chapter about um, people in this UFO scene. And uh, there are people who are way more credible 
you who you can take seriously that uh, they are not this kind of show persons mm-hmm. showmen Sitoin was a showman but uh, there are people who are way more like uh, stable as persons we could say intelligent maybe uh, and uh, whose cases have been better reported who are more interesting so there's the, there's a whole spectrum of uh, persons and um and also like a reports, like how seriously they can be taken. But well, this goes with the agenda of the book. Like our our, our idea was to paint the general picture of uh, of different kind of people and a different kind of groups and a phenomena in general, and, and give the whole spectrum of, of uh, people and ideas. Very interesting, and that is hilarious. Um, to to. To start to tie it all together um, towards the end of the show here, um, where where is Finnish occultism now? How is this all uh, all of the stories and all these people? Um, how has this evolved, and and what does it look like now? What does the scene look like now? Well, that's a good question. Um, it looks like that uh, we have had a real boom here during the last few years. And I think that uh, the finished version of our book that came out in 2015 apparently had a part in it. But uh, uh, our book in Finnish too, like it wouldn't have been that popular unless there were there was a need, yeah, kind of a market for it, like that if people were really interested in it. If they weren't, uh, our book wouldn't be wouldn't have been so popular. So it looks like that there's a real like a big interest in Finland to these things in general. And uh, again, the spectrum of the type of interest is all the way from a somehow culture, just like a popular entertainment, to all the way to the other end of the spectrum, to people who are like serious practi- uh, seriously pract- practicing, uh, practicing uh, some sort of uh, esotericism they are in some groups or they do solo mm-hmm. on their own so there's a whole spectrum of uh, things but uh, you can find it from a popular culture like there's more i think than ever or a long time like uh, this kind of esoteric elements you can find from popular novels um there are like uh, when it comes to art exhibitions theater and so there's uh, all kind of things that weren't there before and when it comes to the groups, uh, there are the well, there are the old old groups that have been like uh, around for a hundred years or more. We the Freemasons are there, the Odd Fellows are there, the Spiritualistic Society is there, Theosophical Society, Anthroposophy, Amork, all of that is still there. But um, we also have these um, neo-pagan groups, and they are. They are plenty in different forms, uh, different kind of groups. There are lots of them. There are also these left-hand path organizations. Uh, the Order Temple Orientis is also here. And the Gurdjieff Society is here, all active, Gnostic Society. And in addition to all of these, there are also uh, podcasts, like a publishers, uh, all kind of interesting uh, elements and why this is so i don't know but uh clearly there is uh, some kind of a boom i think the last time finland has something like this it was probably in the 
late 60s, 70s, when it comes to how much books, this, this kind of books were published and bought and talk in a, in the popular media. And so uh, um, that was probably 60s, 70s, the last time there was something this big. But I think this is now even bigger. I don't know why, but like things in general in culture, like um, they seem to go and come in waves. Sometimes they are up, some then they go down, and mm-hmm. then they come up again. And well, now we seem to be having this kind of a boom that they are very, very popular. Did you guys? Do you guys? Um, we had something that that's called the Satanic Panic here in America. Did you guys have a similar thing over over in Europe, Scandinavia? And, and what's the general f- feeling? The the non practicing kind of more mundane culture how do they look at all of this mm-hmm. yeah this is good 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 question uh we covered this in the uh last chapter the 15th chapter like um when this uh, satanic panic was going on especially in the states and the uk um it came like um, all kind of new ideas in general they came to finland with a little delay like um, one two years later and uh the effect was very, very minimal. Like uh, mm. we didn't get, thank God, <laughs> uh, any, anything like uh, that was in the States or in the UK. Like uh, there was like a few mentioned in uh, national TV, the Christians, uh, these more fundamentalist Christians, they were, of course, drumming to the cause as much as they could. Some uh, some Christians published this absolutely hilarious sea uh, tape about uh, alleged connections between uh, Satanism and rock music and how this was dangerous to the youth and so. But uh, but there was nothing like these very ugly cases that, like in the states, that uh, families were broken and uh, they mm-hmm. all, all the all these horrible court cases and. Uh, and and stuff nothing like that happened here we got some attention on up from the press to this topic too but it was very small in general finnish public like a uh, look at like a uh, what is this and uh i remember there was this one uh, psychologist perti uh, virtanen on television uh, analyzing this this uh, phenomenon he said that uh, i think that uh, we should be more worried about uh people who see who see devil devils everywhere like this is way more dangerous than listening to some rock music some heavy metal music and i think this reflected very well the general atmosphere in finland Mm. in general like uh, people weren't really like uh, um, that worried about it Uh, and uh, somewhere of course like when it comes to christian circles there was a um, that was a receptive ground for that, but uh, in general, it was luckily quite quite lame, which was good. Yes, very good. What's the state of religion in general um, presently? I mean, um, Christianity seems to be shrinking in a lot of countries mm-hmm. and areas. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there kind of a pagan resurgence there? Is there uh, other influences, Buddhism, that kind of thing? When it comes to Finland, like uh, it needs to be mentioned that uh, we have a evangelic Lutheran Lutheran, Lutheran Christianity yeah. is uh, it's basically a state religion, 
it's like a state and uh, the church is not separated in in, in Finland. But uh, it's very important to know, like if somebody just looks from Wikipedia or wherever, like a, how is religion in Finland, and they find out that oh, they have a state religion. It sounds like that uh, people uh-huh. here are like super religious or super Christian or something. No way! Like we are so secular mm. nation that uh, it's like a this mention about a state church that's basically a joke. Like uh, most of the people uh, who are members of the church, I think it's not nowadays. Is it around seventy percent of people are members of the? state church something like that um, they go to church only when uh, they want to have these uh, formal rites of passage like somebody uh, gets a name a baby somebody gets married they like yeah. to get it in a cool environment like a, it's better than doing a civil ceremony in magistrate where it's just a boring room it's more cool right a huge church and the family likes it <laughs> where somebody dies like again then we go to church but otherwise like on the weekends or in the middle of the week the churches are absolutely empty like mm. uh, they are just like a it's a cultural habit and a institution in this kind of way but when it comes to Finns beliefs christianity is um it's 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 it's, it's, it, it's really not very strong then there are of course like uh, all the other main uh world religions you can find from here but they are not as big in numbers as christianity you can find buddhism islam judaism all the rest and uh, all these uh, alternative uh, esoteric groups too uh, these these are really like a minuscule absolutely small in number compared to let's say christianity or or any of these more known religions but um there is some really genuine um like a spiritual you could say mm-hmm. like activity involved like a people who tend to be in these smaller groups they are like a really dedicated they are serious about it because of course it's your choice and you you are not there like because it's a right. just just some tradition that uh, we just do because it's been done so um this is kind of a general uh, cultural ground. You can find every, like uh, all possible uh, world religions from here and esoteric currents. But uh, well, because we are a small country, we have only around five and a half million inhabitants to begin with. Of course, like the number of uh, members of these groups too are, are, are quite small. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Janus, anything, anything else before we wrap up? No, I was delighted by this interview, and I'm very satisfied with where we went with it. Good, good. Anything else, uh, Vesa, that you'd like to cover or talk about before we um, say goodbye? Mm. Uh, well, first of all, thanks to you for having me on. It was an honor. And if anybody wants to like uh, find more about the books, uh, we have a Facebook page and Instagram page, and there's like a a bit more photos than in the book and they most of them are in color and there's some background um, stuff that can't be necessarily found from the book and 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 so that's basically that's basically it okay thank you thank you for having me on yeah fascinating book fascinating discussion um it was really a pleasure to have you and and to to talk with you thank you for giving us this much time thank you yeah thank thank you. you so much it was really intriguing and thank you for 
thank you for spreading the word about the culture, the esoteric culture of Finland, because I mean, in the West, it's not something we know very much about. So, yeah, this is um, some, something that I didn't say, but uh, when it comes to uh, like a Finnish, this esoteric uh, occult groups and history in general, uh, although I say it myself, uh, it's true that our book, it's, it's the first of its kind. There not has been a kind of a popular history book that puts these things in the same same book, like uh, in English. So uh, this is, uh, I, I, I hope there is a need for this in English market as well, not only in Finnish. So if somebody's interested, I, although I say it myself, I'm biased. I would still say that that's a pretty good start place to start. <laughs> definitely, definitely. No, thank you for this work. Thank you. Okay, that was Vesa Iti. Um, Vesa wrote a very interesting book on Finnish occultism and esotericism, Lightbringers of the North. I've been looking forward to this um, translation for a while. I find northern the esotericism of northern countries intriguing. My only hope uh, after reading this book is that perhaps there may be some kind of follow-up work that covers um, the indigenous Sesami practices and shamanism uh that would really be a treat i'd love to see you know even how those intersect with modern uh finnish esotericism that's something that i don't think was touched much on in the book but there was so much covered in this survey it's really interesting um so yeah i think it was i think it was fun to talk about these things and it was it's been really fun reading the book really interesting experience just learning about these um these figures and so i'm grateful for visa for coming on the show and talking about all of it and he was was a really uh friendly amiable guest and uh, we're glad to have glad to have had him on yeah very nice guy and honestly i i knew nothing about finnish occultism um so it was it was interesting to to read through this and it's it's pretty far-reaching uh there's quite a spectrum of of individuals that he talks about and covers. So you're not stuck with just reading about one, one group or one person. It, it jumps around to all different uh, unique and colorful individuals. So it keeps your attention. It is very interesting, but I agree. Um, uh, the indigenous uh, Finnish spiritual practices are definitely interesting to me and it would would be nice to see how the interaction revolution or influence uh, between the old and the new a little bit more but um, overall yeah interesting book interesting guest and i hope uh, our listeners found it um, educational i don't know how how well known some of these finnish characters are but you know it's worth knowing about them I also think it might be fun to do a show at some point on, you know, Finnish reconstructionist um, religion, yeah. indigenous religion. It might be fun to discuss that with people who are doing it. I'm sure there are because sure. it's happening all over the world. So I'm, I'm sure there's a Finnish version of it because the Kalevala is an important text. I know that and it's um, there's a lot of national identity bound up with it. Okay. What is the book that you've got for us this week? The book I'm reading right now is called The Dead Are Alive. They can and do communicate with you, despite the sensationalistic sounding title. This is a very interesting book. 
this man put out um, more than one book. He actually he actually founded an ESP Psi Research Institute, um, and his primary focus was on uh, on proving the continued existence of the human soul after death. Um, his name is Harold Sherman. I believe he's passed at this point. Uh, this book especially focuses on EVP, electronic uh, electronic voice projection, where it, EVP started with cassettes, you know, uh, on cassette tapes, cassette recorders. People would attempt to communicate with the dead and be recording it, and then they noticed when they went to playback the cassettes that there were voices sometimes and some people uh use started attempting to use this as a form of two-way communication with the dead so it's a pretty interesting thing now i know this falls a little into the quote-unquote paranormal territory and i'm always hesitant Mm -hmm. to go in that direction on the show because there's a lot of so-called ghost hunters and just really I'm just going to be honest, silly people with silly ideas about the way the spirit world and esotericism even works who are in the so-called paranormal world. You know, usually when you hear the word paranormal, it's people who are borderline atheists who believe in ghosts (laughs) and believe in technology and they think they're ghostbusters. Um, (laughs) um, But they don't really believe in the reality of deities or spirits or and i'm just speaking very generally i'm sure there are people in that world that do but generally speaking these are you know sort of regular folks who don't really believe in the in in the sacred or the divine necessarily but are interested in ghosts and using cool gadgets to you know find out if the ghosts are really there and then you know also go into abandoned buildings and explore them and have infrared cameras and have shows and that's not a world i want to go into with the podcast so please don't misunderstand me this book, on the other hand, was written before the whole craze um, that we see nowadays. And EVP is a very interesting subject. I'm, you know, I'm not sure if EVP is actually the spirits of the dead speaking through tapes or not. I think in some cases it's certainly possible, and in some cases it's probably not the case. Uh, but what I do think is that EVP on its own is intriguing because it does represent some kind of interface between psychic communication and um, analog technology. Although I, as, as far as I understand, there's digital EVP now too. Personally, I'm disinclined to see digital EVP as necessarily as valid because I think that there's something to the process of magnetic recording that is part of the reason why it becomes possible for the discarnate or for people unconsciously psychically projecting to be recorded. Uh, but this book is very interesting. It's filled with firsthand accounts. They even give, there's even in one chapter directions on how to uh, do EVP yourself and, and create a um, sort of setup to do it. And it also goes beyond EVP in the book and just talks about the continued existence of souls after death and different people and different families and things that have experienced um you know legitimate provable uh d- legitimate proof that that there is um somebody who they knew who had passed on who was communicating with them 
So it's called The Dead Are Alive. They Can and Do Communicate with You. It's by Harold Sherman. Again, interesting book. Um, I, I, I think it does touch on mediumship as well, which is something we've covered in our show, especially when we were dealing in dealing with certain indigenous um, magical religious practices. Um, practices. We, uh, we touch on mediumship because true mediumship is a method of communicating with the dead and spirits do exist. And so I think because of that overlap, uh, this book is worth mentioning. Yeah, sounds interesting. I, I tend to not be super into the paranormal stuff, but this one uh, does sound like it would be good. Okay, on that note, I think we're going to wrap up early. So until next time, uh, thank you very much for listening, and we will uh, see you in the next episode. Bye.